who threw potato salad at CCNY lectures on Dadaism and subsequently presented themselves on the granite steps of the madhouse with shaven heads and harlequin speech of suicide demanding instantaneous lobotomy. I like that line just because it has the idea in it that like if somebody's going to teach you about Dadaism, you might as well just throw potato salad at them. And I'd like to imagine myself as the guy throwing potato salad, but I'm more likely to be the guy on the other end of that, I suppose. <laughs> They told me that the classics never got a style, but they do. What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch. Moloch the Loveless, Mental Moloch, Moloch the Heavy Judger of Men, Moloch the Incomprehensible Prison, Moloch the Crossbone Soulless Jailhouse and Congress of Sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the Vast Stone of War, Moloch the Stunned Governments, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money! Welcome to the Pointless Century. discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Tonight, everyone's favorite disaffected poets of the 50s, Allen Ginsberg versus Sylvia Plath. Sound editor Madeline here. I just wanted to say, please be advised that many of the topics discussed in today's episode may be disturbing for listeners, including discussions of mental health, eating disorders, death, and suicide. So if any of these topics are triggering for you, it would be best to maybe skip over this episode. With that being said, I'll hand it over to Frank, Anna, and Rachel. So for today... I selected two poets that I consider to be sort of canonical outsiders of the mid-century, if that makes sense. They're definitely doing their own thing. They're definitely sort of in a weird space. They're definitely self-identified iconoclasts who are trying to shake things up, who are questioning the status quo of 1950s and early 60s mainstream culture specifically. Obviously, Ginsburg goes on longer than that. But at the same time, they're canonical in that we all generally have heard of Allen Ginsberg and Sylvia Plath, if we know anything about American and English language poetry. I think that the two of them kind of epitomize the pushing of the boundaries of what we imagine to be the fairly restrained mainstream culture of that mid-century Cold War era. What did you like here? What did you not like? For the record, we read Allen Ginsberg's Howl, including the footnote to Howl, as well as America. And by Sylvia Plath, we read 
Lady Lazarus, Daddy, and the Colossus. I like and dislike Howl. I like what it talks about, but I don't like the style and how it executes what it's trying to get across. It gets the point across well in the style where it's basically a run-on sentence for 10 pages, but I just couldn't keep track. I had to stop, like, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, and then, like, a lot of stanzas are, like, a dozen stanzas are, who poverty and tatters? Who bared their brains? Who passed through universities? Like, I had to keep thinking about how it was prefaced that it could make sense to me and it was really hard for me to keep doing that because like that goes on to the second page the third page fourth page fifth page it finally changes a bit and then the second part is better though it does start with Moloch it was really hard for me to keep track of all this I like organization foundation well, there is an organization to it. There's actually a rather careful yeah, organization yeah. to it, but it's an organization that's made to look sloppy. Yeah. I like neat organization, <laughs> even though my life does not look like that. <laughs> my college prof who taught this, who I've noted that I had beef with over some things, always said, well, Allen Ginsberg's presenting this to you as like, man, I'm so messed up on drugs, man. And this is like her square idea of trying to imitate somebody who's on drugs. <laughs> I'm not even trying to organize this. It's just, I'm just throwing out ideas on the paper. But then she would inform us, it's actually very carefully organized. It's actually very calculated to look a certain way and sound a certain way and feel a certain way. My response to that is, actually, not really. I think that the fact that the poem imitates something of the sort of crazy amphetamine diatribe that it's trying to evoke is not the same thing as Allen Ginsberg pretending to be fucked up writing this. Because there are other poems where he does do that, but that's not this poem. This poem, clearly, he worked over for a long time. And even if it's a shaggy style, if you will, Rachel, <laughs> even if it's a shaggy style, it's clearly thought out. You can see how the long lines get longer and longer and longer and longer until then they recede, like sort of the crest of a wave. They get longer and longer and longer and longer, and then they get shorter, and then they get shorter, and then they get shorter, and then they get long again, and they get long again, and they get long again, and then they get shorter. So there's a sort of structure to it, both in this sort of way that the poem breathes line by line, and then also in the way that each section works. When I would teach this, I actually have a PowerPoint set up and basically explain this poem is three sentences. Maybe not strictly speaking, but there are three things that he says here. And if you keep that in mind, you'll understand what's going on. If you lose it, then you're just swimming in a sea of words. But if you keep in mind that it's in three parts, the three parts each say a thing, it's a sentence. In the first part, it may actually literally be a sentence. There is a sort of very clear flow once you find it. And that is actually an incredibly careful way of organizing a poem, but it is shaggy. That's a little bit different than like, look, I'm so fucked up. This is what I wrote, which is sort of, I don't know. I think that that prof was maybe confusing Ginsburg with some of the other beats, like particularly someone like Kerouac, who is much more into the idea of here's a draft and the draft is true. Whereas Ginsburg was very into revising, like obsessively into revising. I actually did notice the structure. I wrote that 
while I was reading it, it flips back and forth from outrage and shorter sections to praise of the socially unacceptable, action versus inaction. Other than Howell, I really liked Lady Lazarus. I didn't really care for Daddy or the Colossus. And I think I'll talk about that later, but I like how she used that figure to reference back to some things in her own life. And I like that she kind of used it as a platform to not only talk about her crap, but (laughs) just crap in general. That's definitely characteristic of all of Sylvia Plath's work. But I think it's also something that unites these two poets. What we see in both the case of Ginsburg and of Plath is this sort of mythologization of the self mm-hmm. and the use of autobiographical material as a way of speaking for the problems of society as a whole but rarely doing that as just this is what happened, much more often doing that in this sort of like high mythological sense. But then also with this awareness of how goofy that mythology is. So uh, we might even say that this is kind of a bit of the turn from modernism over into postmodernism, and we're not quite there yet but that twist from the mythologization to the joke about mythologization, if you will, that we see more frequently in a postmodern text. The point is that they're both using material from their lives, they're both critiquing the culture, and they're both drawing from any number of different mythological, elusive networks that they can use to express those things meaningfully. And I would argue that the Colossus is more jokey than Lady Lazarus even than like what you were talking about. Interesting. So what about the Colossus seems jokey Mm. or hokey to you? Usually I think people would say that about Daddy. Yeah. Well, I definitely would say that about Daddy, but comparison the Colossus to Lady Lazarus, I think Lady Lazarus does it better than the Colossus. If I had to rank them, it would be Lady Lazarus, the Colossus, and then Daddy. Okay. Same. I mean, the wordage, like specific words compared like side-by-side Lady Lazarus and Colossus, I could see how you would do that. Did you read them Colossus right after Lazarus? I read Daddy, Colossus, Lazarus. Okay. I could maybe see that. Like, Pails of Lysol, Consider Yourself an Oracle. It's lighter than Lady Lazarus. So I could maybe see that. I would need to be convinced more. So seeing as both of these poets obviously have a lot of themselves in the poems, we probably are going to have to cover the biographies in one way Mm -hmm. or another. Obviously, Ginsburg's biography is longer than Plath's. Rachel, you said that you were looking at Plath's information before we came on here, I think, and that maybe gave you a little bit of a different view on it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so she had some father issues. Some would say daddy issues. (laughs) She Um, named the poem that. (laughs) But she had some daddy issues. He died when she was 10. Father was from Austria, so hence the German terms, especially daddy, ach du. I don't know if that's how you say it, but so that really makes sense with the Nazi comparison 
in Daddy again. It's a lot of that brings to light, but she was also very suicidal, unfortunately, but we can see that in Lady Lazarus. That's all about that there. I'm wrong. Yeah, I thought that her dad had died when she was eight, but I'm terrible at remembering oh, numbers. I'm terrible no, eight at remembering Eight or ten. Numbers. Eight or ten. Uh, yeah, he, those two are important. He had... Um, untreated diabetes of some sort yeah and he thought that he had lung cancer because his friend had just died of that so Otto Plath died a week and a half after Plath's eighth birthday she lost her faith unfortunately when she visited her father's grave later it prompted her to write Electra of Azalea Path so she's almost from the beginning identifying with Electra yeah am I reading that correctly yeah. She was yes. also brilliant. She had an IQ of 160. Oh, yeah. She was apparently everybody Everybody who knew her pretty much universally recognized her as a genius, regardless of what we might say about whether IQ tests measure anything. Yeah. No. Everybody who knew her knew that she was brilliant. Yeah. And she was writing poems from a very young age and stuff like that. Yeah. She went Which, to an all-ladies school. Well, that's what she did back then. Was it Smith? I think it was Smith. I yeah, one of those now stereotypically very lesbian schools. Um, I mean, even then it was actually also then stereotypically lesbian. People just had code words for it. But, <laughs> but she did her thesis on Dostoevsky. She then, I guess, got into the poetry world and met Ted Hughes. Was described by some as having a voice that sounded like God. I don't know what that means, except I think it gives you some sense of her awe at him and how he fit into a life of daddy issues. And then they were divorced at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, they got married. They had two children. One miscarriage. And then they divorced. She was always very depressed and from time to time suicidal. She did electroshock treatment at a few times in her life. He was having an affair. Yeah, they split. She committed suicide a few months after the divorce. I think like six months or so after the divorce, if I'm correctly remembering. Yeah, she was 30. And so she publishes two collections of poetry, one collection of fiction that was, I think, sort of ignored, and then a novel, The Bell Jar, which was, I guess we'd call it a sleeper hit insofar as nobody cared about it while she was alive. And then these days people read it quite frequently, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and the bell jar is very much about her, you know, experience with mental illness and what passed for treatment of mental illness in those days. She committed suicide by gas, uh, which was apparently a popular way to do it in those days. I mean, oh my God, maybe popular is not the right way to describe it, but you know, turn the gas on your oven and just sort of suffocate yourself. She had her head in the oven, and I think significantly for the weirder end point of the story that I feel obliged to relate, she sealed up the room that had her children in it. She wanted to make sure the children were not harmed. So she sealed up that room and put her head in the oven and killed herself that way at like 4.30 in the morning or something. She had, I think, terrible insomnia as well as her incredible depression. The very bizarre footnote of this, and I'm hardly an expert on Ted Hughes, but Ted Hughes does not come out of this looking good at all. The woman who Ted Hughes was having an affair with and then would 
you know, go on to have a relationship with, she was married to somebody else. And I can't remember if she eventually married him or what. Oh, she eventually did have one child by him, though he never acknowledged it. She killed herself too. And she was like, just to like get real creepy with it here, if you'll pardon me for a minute, she ended up living in, I guess, the same house that Plath and Hughes had lived in. Oh shit! And using a lot of Sylvia Plath's things, oh god, and like developed a sort of bizarre obsession with her, and then ended up also oh. committing suicide by turning on the oven and leaving. Well, rather not turning on the oven, but just turning on the gas of the oven. But she also had her child by Ted Hughes with her when she did it, and so she killed her child as well. I'm not sure if that actually means anything for the purposes of analyzing Sylvia Plath's poems, except to say that Sylvia Plath has had an effect on many people in many ways that like, to the extent that she is a figure that goes well beyond the page, that she is a sort of legendary figure. Uh, And I think we could say the same thing of Ginsburg as well. As far as the poems go, I think that we'll see when we get into them that there's some pretty obvious recognition on Plath's part that she was replacing her dad that she'd lost when she was young with Ted Hughes, and that maybe growing as an individual was learning to try and break free from that sort of need for a patriarchal figure in her life. And then I guess the the final thing we'll say about like fuck Ted Hughes is after she dies, then he gets to be the one who makes all the editorial decisions with publishing that second work of poetry, Ariel, because I guess, I mean, he inherits the literary estate, even though they're divorced. I'm not really sure how those things exactly work, but... Father of the children? I mean, and maybe she even left it to him to make those decisions in her will or maybe it was just that he was de facto her literary agent i'm not really sure how those things work i know how those things work insofar as like i have a document written up and i'm sure that some other people do but like typically it's your spouse you wouldn't think it would count if you were divorced from that person right yeah but in the early 60s in england who the fuck knows long and short it's kind of deeply unfair and weird then that he gets editorial control over how those poems are published especially in terms of like making decisions like which poems go into the collection which drafts of the poems obviously you know a good editor tries to make those kinds of decisions based on doing the best they can to tell the wishes of the poet i mean that's a pretty obvious conflict of interest right there too so yeah there is i believe a newer edition of Ariel that came out in, I don't know exactly when, more recently, I'd say like the last 10 years or 20 years or so, where some editors tried to maybe find something that was a little closer to the version that Plath wanted versus the version that Hughes wanted. I'm not an expert on those distinctions, nor are we going to be going through Ariel in detail, but the poems Daddy and Lazy Lazarus do come from that collection. So I'll just put that out there. Let's start out by looking at the Colossus, which would have been the title poem of Sylvia Plath's first collection, the one that she published while she was alive. The Colossus by Sylvia Plath. I shall never get you put together entirely, pieced, glued, and properly jointed, meal bright, pig grunt, and body cackles proceed from your great lips. It's worse than a barnyard. Perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, 
mouthpiece of the dead, or of some god or other. Thirty years now I have labored to dredge the silt from your throat. I am none the wiser. Scaling little ladders with glue pots and pails of Lysol, I crawl like an ant in mourning over the weedy acres of your brow to mend the immense skull plates and clear the bald white tumuli of your eyes. A blue sky out of the Orestia arches above us, O oh, Father, all by yourself. You are pity and historical as the Roman Forum. I open my lunch on a hill of black cypress. Your fluted bones and acanthine hair are littered in their old anarchy to the horizon line. It would take more than a lightning stroke to create such ruin. Nights, I squat in the cornucopia of your left ear, out of the wind, counting the red stars and those of plum color. The sun rises under the pillar of your tongue. My hours are married to the shadow. No longer do I listen for the scrape of a keel on the blank stones of the landing. So what do we see there that seems worth talking about? She's trying to put back together what she used to have, this man that dominated her life. I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's all about how great and broken he is or was. Yeah. In the fifth stanza, he's sort of protecting her. Nights I squat in the cornucopia of your left ear out of the wind. It's not total protection, but in the part before that, it's talking about how a lightning stroke could not destroy this colossus. So he is protecting her to some degree still, even after his death. Mm -hmm. The idea of this patriarchal colossus is just so, I guess I want to use the word awful. There is this deep sense of awe here, and also it is like horrible. I'm looking at this third stanza, scaling little ladders with glue pots and pails of Lysol, I crawl like an ant in mourning. She envisions herself as this tiny insect working to repair and clean this great monumental statue. But she is so insignificant to it. Right. So she is trying. Right. Perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, mouthpiece of the dead, or of some god or other. Thirty years now I have labored to dredge the silt from your throat. That is a pretty impressive section to my mind. The idea that writing her poetry is working to speak something, but it's something that someone else is going to say to dredge the silt out of your throat, to bring that colossus to life. We easily read this as a sort of patriarchal figure, the father that she's lost. And she does say eventually, oh, father, all by yourself, you are pithy and historical as the Roman forum. But there we also see immediately it isn't her father and it's almost the whole span of history. It's something older and more basic. The other super weird footnote to this poem is that she and Ted Hughes had been very into the occult for a period of time, 
and they had been working with a Ouija board, I guess. I mean, this okay. is kind of, in a certain sense, this is just like the kind of basic stuff that poets do to just get ideas, you know? We don't have to necessarily invest it with any supernatural significance. But one version of the story that we might hear about how this poem is written and what it might mean, she apparently claimed that there was a spirit called Colossus who spoke to her from the Ouija board. That like she's trying to channel that kind of ancient energy or that ancient spirit into her work. And that's what she's doing as she's writing, which is at least a different reading from the, I think, more obvious daddy oriented readings, if you will. And that doesn't shock me. I mean, once you know about her life and stuff, that doesn't shock me that she was into that. It doesn't shock you that she was into Ouija boards? No. It's cool to have a, a Ouija board reading in here, but I think that it also might take on a bit of a life of its own if you're not careful, especially because it's like creepy spooky, like she ends Ooh. up killing herself. And then also, you know, the next woman ends up killing herself too. And it's Ouija probably not and, why. Yeah, it's probably just because it really sucks to be a woman in that period of time and Ted Hughes isn't making things easier. You guys were mainly interested in Lady Lazarus and I suppose less so in Daddy. Yep. Yeah. They obviously go together and this gets into some of that mythologization. Rachel, why don't you start by reading Lady Lazarus for us? I have done it again. One year in every 10, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle, my skin, bright as a Nazi lampshade my right foot, a paperweight, my face, a featureless, fine Jew linen, peel off the napkin, oh, my enemy. Do I terrify? The nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth, the sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh, the grave cave eight, will be at home on me, and I am a smiling woman. I am only 30. And like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves into sea. Them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was 10. It was an accident. The second time, I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut. A seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I've a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's theatrical. Come back in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute. Amuse shout. A miracle. That knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge. For the hearing of my heart, it really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge for a word or a touch or a bit of blood. 
or a piece of my hair, my clothes. So, so, air doctor. So, air enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there is nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Ere God, ere Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of ash, I will rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. Whew. So there is a lot going on in there. Yeah. And there's a lot that quite obviously links it to daddy, both in the imagery and even in the literal words that are used. What do you notice most of all that you think is worth talking about? The symbolism of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that? I think just the trouble that she grew up in living in Austria. I'm pretty sure she was American. And this is oh, this yeah. is actually one of the things that makes it a little tricky to read some of these poems. Because first off, we don't necessarily have to assume that she herself, the poet, is the speaker. True. And yet at the same time, it's almost impossible not to because everything that she does is so intensely personal. Mm-hmm. So she's born in Boston, and she lives most of her life in America, and then, of course, lives in England with Ted Hughes. But her dad is from Grabau, Germany, and he was an entomologist, a professor of biology at Boston University. So he would have been an immigrant to Boston in actually the pre-war period, because he dies in 1940. So you have to sort of, for the purposes of her mythology, imagine this sort of bizarre situation of being a child during the Second World War and having a very much German-looking and apparently sounding father and mother, and then he dies. I think the fact that he died in 1940, so sort of toward the beginning of the Second World War, before American intervention notably, but still that sort of explains why she always is identifying him with Nazism in this way that doesn't, strictly speaking, make sense. It's just mm-hmm. a sort of mythological association. But they but, were probably in touch because immigrants, probably keeping in touch with family overseas who are there during... That may or may not have been the case. I think that it's worth bringing up, but it's hard to say. Certainly back in the day that, you know, it was more common to just sort of cut ties than it is these days. It's nearly impossible not to stay in touch, you know. I can't speak to that. It's possible, though. A sort of walking miracle, my skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. Yeah. And then the napkin. Peel off the napkin. Oh, my enemy, do I terrify. There's no way that I can't imagine that as like peeling the skin off her face. She doesn't say that, but it's almost impossible for me not to imagine that. Did you get that yeah, sense too? Yeah. There's like a little thing like, oh, it could be her dress, but like, no, it's like, it's all about her features before that. So why would you mention your clothes without mentioning well, clothes? Here's where I'm getting it. My face, a featureless fine Jew oh. linen. So she's imagining lampshades made out of skin. 
she's speaking of cloth made out of skin and then skin and cloth and napkin are all smushed together there to the point at which she says peel off the napkin and yeah i think that you could equally imagine that as take off my clothes or take off my skin creepy creepy imagery obviously that's the whole point the nose the eye pits the full set of teeth What a million filaments the peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them wrap me hand and foot the big strip tees. But what she's talking about is her body as like the body of a mummy or the body of a corpse wrapped for burial. And so then peeling off the layers of linen also can be like peeling off the skin as well. Maybe they stick together. Or maybe, as she's already intimated, the linen could be made of human skin already. Yeah, I love the references to her own mental health. And in connection to that, I wrote down, why make death a spectacle? And then I wrote down, am I worth anything anyway? You know, talking about her from her perspective. Do you think that she wants her death to be a spectacle? Or does she feel like it just is or will be no matter what? It is and it will be, but I don't think that she wants it that way. Yeah, because she said they had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. That could be like she's out hiding. Like they had to call and call to find me and to wake me back up. But I had worms on me because I was decomposing in a forest or somewhere natural. I have a rant about this poem, but... Give me the rant. It's in connection to when she talks about resurrection and that bit where I wrote down the comeback and the resurrection is the worst part. You feel fake. It is no miracle that I'm acting how you prefer me to act. Do not judge what you do not understand. And I take that from my own experience, obviously. You go through this horrible thing and then you try to get back to the person that you were but once you're back there you feel like well I'm just playing a part that someone would prefer me to play and maybe maybe I'm better well I'm not better messed up but maybe I'm more authentic and people will push their judgments on whatever state you're in so I can kind of relate to that though because I had like this persona my sophomore and junior year. Well, it was mostly, it was just my sophomore year. It was, I was like this goth girl and I played that part. I mean, I was still bright, but not as bright. But like I had this part to play. Like I felt like, oh, I'm being fake if I wear a dress because I'm always wearing skinny jeans and a black screen print t-shirt with a joke from Hot Topic. And then I felt like I was lying to everybody when I went to homecoming and wore a dress. It's definitely not what, Plath is trying to express here, but I feel it to some degree playing a part, going to something else, going back and feeling like, oh, wait, but it's definitely not to that degree. Am I making myself an object for other people to understand? And do I understand that myself? And that's a kind of experience that's pretty, maybe not unique, but pretty specific to being a woman. In what way? Well, in the again, not unique to being a woman, but specific to being a woman, in that you're talking about how you yourself are perceived as a person, but so much of that is filtered through how your body is perceived. 
whether that's the style of dress that Rachel is talking about, or whether that's these very grotesque images of the body that Plath is getting into in the poem. There's a lot in this poem that we could even read as sort of anorexic imagery, if you will, Mm -hmm. right? The description of glowing skin, the idea of sort of the the body being reduced to almost nothing, the idea of like layers being stripped away. These are my hands. I may be skin and bone. Nevertheless, I'm the same identical woman. Right. And so a lot of what we see here is very much expressing an experience of being a woman and being judged and being observed in physical terms. And yet again, also in mental terms, also in behavioral terms or in if you will, emotional terms, which is perhaps a little bit more what you were getting at, Anna. It is about people seeing what you've done and how you've acted and reacting to that and that becoming a sort of performance, whether you want it to be or not. Long-winded way of saying that everything is a performance for a woman in a way that it might not necessarily be for a man. I feel like, yes, as a woman, you can read that as that, but I feel like for a lot of people, men or women. Yeah, we might say a performance with higher stakes or a performance whether or not you want it to be so. Anna, you were, I think, talking a little bit more about this in terms of mental health, though. Yeah, definitely. And I think that especially for young women, Plath is this sort of patron saint poet of people who are struggling with any number of those sorts of issues let's go back to the reincarnation, the sort of Phoenix moment at the end that you objected to. Can you talk a little bit more about why you object to that? I don't really necessarily object to her Phoenix moment. I was just reflecting on it because I definitely saw my younger self in it. I feel like more so than the other poems other than Daddy or Colossus because I I have to say it's not catch all for me with her. I won't be the one to say it's Plath and then praise all of her work. I won't. More so in Lady Lazarus, I thought that she did a better job than in the other two of taking a personal tragedy and expanding it not only to other women, but to other problems in society. How do we talk about mental health? How do we deal with it? How do we deal with women in society? Things like that. I thought that she did a better job of that than in the other two. Well, but what do you think that she's trying to say with the Lazarus moment, with this idea that she's coming back from the dead again? Beware, beware, out of the ash, I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. What is she saying? Is she speaking of some form of way that she'll live on after her final suicide? Is she speaking of something that changes after an attempted suicide? Is she speaking more vaguely about working through her mental health issues? Or I don't know, what do you see there? No, you could take it as, oh, she's trying to work through her issues and things like that. I think that she's trying to make a point of, if I work through my issues, I might be the same. But does that really matter? If the same version of me is really the fake version or the lesser version of me, yeah, I might rise, but to what? How is it growth if I just return to where I once was? See, I see it as in the last stanza, she's 
emerging from the fire of whatever as something better, as something pure, as something stronger, and as something that's ready to take on the patriarchal forces that have controlled her life. But then again, I'm not sure necessarily how to read the fire or to read rising out of the ashes or, or what. She's saying, beware both you, God and Lucifer. Yeah. I will eat men. I will eat fucking men. And I will rise out of this ash, you motherfuckers. I'm going to do some badass shit. Excuse my French. Well, and it's not for nothing that she imagines both God and Satan as men. Yeah. It's just as just like more men in a long line of men. Just to take it back to a personal perspective. Even after you move on or become more clean and stuff like she is, even if you defeat the demons, whatever else she references, doesn't it not still sit and stew? From my experience, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that, that if there is something that rings false about the rebirth, is that we can't and we shouldn't envision the struggle with mental illness as something that you then get over and then become a cured, different, better person. That actually, that way of imagining it is really part of the problem. Because it's such a big part of your life and some things you just can't drop no matter how hard you try. Something that you struggle with and that you'll continue to struggle with in most cases. I mean, certainly some things can get better, some things you can improve, but for the most part, for these kinds of issues, there are struggles that we continue to deal with in our lives in one way or another. We can go through them, but it's kind of hard to imagine ourselves getting beyond them. Mm -hmm. I would consider myself fine now, but it's pretty naive to deny that part of yourself that will always hopefully be empathetic or always be a little bit like I'm not okay. And that's, I'm more people need to admit that. I mean, that's why I liked it so much is because she talked about it, you know? Yeah. I find myself very quickly sliding from like, Oh, that's a problem poetically to like, Oh, that's an ethical issue. Because now that you've put this in my ear, the more I think about it, the more that I wonder is the fantasy of rising from the ash with red hair and eating men like air, is that fantasy in and of itself the dangerous thing that then lets one say, ah, yes, when I destroy myself, I will become stronger. Just by sitting there, there's no working back up to it. You just, you're burned from your things and then you just pop up back up again. Mm -hmm. That isn't like an instantaneous moment it takes work and struggles and tears to rise up again it's a gradual progression you're we're not phoenixes we're humans right and still you're thinking metaphorically we're like i'm thinking like quite literally this is a woman who killed herself i mean certainly sylvia plath lives on right sylvia plath Mm -hmm. what she represents and what she wrote and the ideas that she had and the life that she lived that whole mythology lives on as something that in a certain sense in some people's minds can exhibit the fierceness of that last stanza of the poem. And yet it's an incredibly dangerous idea to be like, oh, well, it will appear that I have destroyed myself, but actually I will be stronger than ever, right? It certainly didn't do her any favors, you know, and maybe other people who read that you know, might come to a conclusion that that's 
I mean, as we went over, like there are other documented cases and people have talked about suicide as a sort of infectious thing in certain circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic last stanza in my mind. I think though, in terms of the imagery, in terms of what we might wish for a character to exhibit or to want to do, but now I'm kind of torn about it when I'm thinking about how it's not really, as you've noted, Anna, an accurate nor perhaps even a responsible representation no. of what getting over mental illness would look like. No, she's, yes, Sylvia Plath lives on, but she's taking the easy way out. It's never that simple in real life. And if it is, what's the result? It's an easy way of ending the poem, kind of like the film endings that we hate, where it's just like, done, you know? What do you think of her use of the whole Holocaust imagery in these two poems? Does that seem like a reasonable or good choice? I think it works well in Daddy because you get the specificness of her talking about her dad. And yeah, I can't assume that she's a speaker, but she's the speaker. But I read it as yes, her dad, but also, again, and all of these, she's expanding. And then I, at some point, I see fascism as this larger figure, and I thought that was really interesting. But then it's contrasted with her cutesy rhyme schemes, which I thought that was not a good choice on her part, especially when you're referencing not only your own broken relationship with your father, but fascism, you know, Nazi Germany, things like that. I guess, to sum it up, good but also problematic. Yes, problematic. Yeah, the first time that I read Daddy, I was just straight up convinced of a literal straight ahead reading of this is a poem about a woman who was the daughter of a Nazi. And then as I actually came to study Plath, was kind of surprised like, no, she lived a very comfortable childhood in America. Her father doesn't appear to have been a Nazi, though he was German. And then this is the way that she mythologized herself. And then the next turn was when I went on to read about her talking about the poem, in which she sort of <laughs> tries to split the difference by claiming that the speaker of the poem is indeed a woman with an electric complex who, yes, had a father who died when she was young and he was a Nazi. So she tries to like throw everything in there to cover all her bases to say that she's like trying to get over that and that in a certain sense it's literally true in the poem. But also everybody always reads these poems as being about her. And part of that's because she's coming out of, well, it's sort of in the process of inventing what ends up being called the confessional school of poetry. But honestly, all of the confessional poets do it in a bit different of a way. And certainly Plath is unique. But the crews that she's going with, like Robert Lowell and Anne Sexton, and yes, also Ted Hughes, are often grouped in this way, maybe not for their full careers, but, you know, at various times. So there is generally the presumption that this is about her, even if it's metaphorized or mythologized, or if we could read it as being about somebody else who's similar to her. There is obviously this weird and intentionally weird disjunction between those ooh, 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 ooh rhymes 
and the fact that she's talking about the Holocaust. It's supposed to be creepy in that it sounds childish. But I think that like even beyond that, looking at this poem and looking at Lady Lazarus and remembering that she's writing this in the last few months of her life, as she's trying to put together a collection and obviously contemplating suicide. I think that her choice to use all this Holocaust imagery and to identify as a Jew in that imagery. And that the bit I, I left out about her telling this story about, well, what is this poem about? I forgot one of the more important parts, which is that as she's inventing this character, she says, ah, oh, yes, and the daughter is suspicious that her mother is indeed actually secretly part Jewish. So in her way of retelling the poem in explanation, she literalizes all of its aspects when really most people read this as very much metaphorical, very much mythological that Sylvia Plath isn't of Jewish descent and doesn't make any claim of that, but rather she uses the mythology of that to speak of oppression and to speak of subjugation and patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, her father isn't in any identifiable way that we know of a Nazi. He just happens to be German and he takes on that mythology, right? I feel like if somebody published these, or even maybe we'd say if somebody tried to publish these today, people would not be buying this. People would, I think, perhaps rightfully say, I don't think you can get away with that. You're taking that on for yourself in a way that seems like kind of just irresponsible and flippant and not like serious enough to the original material. And you have no claim to that. Does that seem like a reasonable thing for me to say that like you couldn't get away with this these days? Well, especially daddy. Yeah. Because it seems a little sillier. There's issues with daddy. (laughs) There are daddy issues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, then all the Nazi imagery, because that's such a sensitive topic. And it's funny to say that it's, oh, it's such a sensitive topic. I mean, I don't have any reason to think that it would be less sensitive back then, but maybe that we would think of how it would be sensitive would be sensitive in a different way, maybe, you know? Sensitive because it's like, oh, wait, 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 no, we don't, no, we Americans don't have Nazi, um, like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Like, you're overthinking it. We already dealt with that stuff we got rid of the Nazis. See, I was thinking of it more in terms of like appropriation. I was thinking of it more in terms of like claiming a suffering that one isn't necessarily entitled to as one's own. I mean, it is quite literally appropriation, right? I mean, like in my mind, I don't think it's out of bounds. I think it's just that we can say that there is, you know, fair enough, some things you can get away with in some eras and that you can't in other eras, you know? I think that, As I read this for her, someone who's literally growing up during the Second World War, I read it as like so much a part of her internalized mythology of good versus evil that it just fits and works. And for me to understand it, then I have to say that for the other people who were reading it, who were of her same generation or a bit older, that they bought into it and said, okay, well, that makes sense to us too. But for us to think of it now, it does seem to me to be a kind of, let's just say a risky appropriation that like maybe you can get away with it if you do it very well. But if not, it does seem kind of a bit offensive to compare your suffering under your father, you know, to the Holocaust, right? They're not 
yeah, they're not equal. And I feel like people would have like a Twitter meltdown or something because there's (laughs) one every second. I'm not ready to Twitter cancel Sylvia Plath, but the ways that we read these things illustrate the whole absurdity over such blowups, right? Which is that nobody ever gets canceled. We're still reading T.S. Eliot and Amiri Baraka and Allen Ginsberg drops an N-bomb in America, you know? Sylvia Plath drops a much harder, much weirder, much less excuseful N-bomb in Ariel, the title poem of this collection that I decided that we weren't going to read because, well, we don't have to step into that minefield right now. Yeah, there's plenty of shit that people write that's like, eh, maybe you shouldn't have written that. But the long and short of it is anyone who's worried about canceled culture obviously hasn't taken an English class because just because it's problematic doesn't mean that we're not going to go round and round about it for the next hundred years. Let's read Daddy. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe, in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or a chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe, big as a Frisco seal. And ahead in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nauset, I used to pray to recover you. Ach, do. In the German tongue in the Polish town scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common, my Polak friend, says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I could never talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. I stuck in a barbed wire snare. Ick, 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 ick. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau. Auschwitz, Belsen, I begin to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna are not very pure or true with my gypsy ancestress, my weird luck, and my tarot pack, and my tarot pack. I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo, and your neat mustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue, Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you, not God, but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, and the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot, but no less a devil for that. No, not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty, I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do, but they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. 
the vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard them through. That last line. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. That works for you? It's strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a satisfying ending. If you remember nothing else, you will remember that last line. I hate how she writes this poem because you're contrasting such deep, dark, and heavy things with childish writing, and that does not work for me. It doesn't. I just don't think it's childish. I do. Well, in her rhyme scheme, in the way that she writes, in her syntax, I think part of it is elementary. People usually say that it is imitating syntax that you'd expect of a maybe a nursery rhyme in parts or something well, like that, also, that it is supposed to sound childish. Yeah. But that like, doesn't, that still doesn't absolve it for you. Anna. No, no. Just because it's supposed to sound childish. What's the point of that? Is it because she's been experiencing this since childhood? And so will other people experience this problem since childhood? Is she born into it? Yeah, there could be that layer there and people could analyze it all they want. It doesn't work for me. Well, that's exactly what I'm thinking. She experienced it as a child. She's dealt with it through a child's emotions and she's trying to explain it to you in a way that a child might see it to some degree. My non-Freudian psychoanalytic reading would be when you have a trauma happen to you, you in many cases get sort of stuck at that point. And so she's expressing that sense of being stuck and not getting past her childhood trauma by speaking about it the way that a child would. Anna, your point is that it's just bad poetry. It's just bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Write better and then I won't be mad. This is the same problem that you had with Elliot. You weren't willing to tolerate the idea that like, maybe it should sound a little bit silly in moments. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's part of the point. Your sense was... Well, there's an absolute sense in my head of what I think poetry that's worth my time is going to sound like. And so therefore, fuck off. You're wasting my time, right? I mean, that sounds horrible when you put it's it It's not that horrible. Way. I'm just trying to reiterate it. You know, it's El Reed. It's what you got. It's your reaction. That's fine. That is generally speaking what you're saying though, right? I guess that's generally fair. I'd like to think that I'm more open to that, but... I guess I'm not one for gimmicks in poetry. Maybe I see what Eliot is doing, what Plath is doing in this poem as that. Well, we might also ask, what is it that leads modernist poetry as it's grappling with the idea of what rhyme could or should do to a place where it does something that's silly and tries to make a gimmick out of it and claim that as an excuse? That's something that we could say is true of both poems, right? Mm -hmm. Because certainly neither poet feels like they're obliged to rhyme and neither poet is using the rhyme in what we might call a uh, virtuosic way. There's no sense here of look how skillful I am with the rhyme. Instead, it's like I'm, I'm beating you in the head with this rhyme. Am I correct in saying that this is her most famous poem? I guess it worked for her. I think that it's the one that I would say gets most frequently into the anthologies. 
And maybe that's unfair to her because the other one, the one that I would say is second most famous is Lady Lazarus. But I would say for people who are actually into Plath, they probably prefer Lady Lazarus for reasons that must seem obvious to you. I think that in there, there's perhaps some questions we might ask about what people think makes poetry easy to teach or worth teaching. Because somebody somewhere is making some decision that it's easier to get the idea of daddy across than it is to get Lady Lazarus across. I would suspect that any anthology that's going to have more than one Sylvia Plath poem in it, which is going to be like most of your like anthologies, right? Most of your mid-century or 20th century anthologies will have more than one Sylvia Plath poem, and these two will definitely be in the list. But the question is, what actually gets taught if you're down to like, I got to teach one poem, you know? If you're teaching one Amiri Baraka poem, it's pretty much always going to be an agony as now. If you're teaching one Sylvia Plath poem, I feel like it's probably daddy, but I could be wrong there. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to find anything else to say about daddy, because it's, in a certain sense just a more sonorific performative version of a lot of the stuff that we saw in Lady Lazarus, right? In terms of the Nazi imagery, in terms of the revelations of parallels to her life, in terms of Ted Hughes being the stand-in for the dead father, the main difference being like instead of killing herself she's talking about killing daddy she's talking about killing off this icon that's holding her back right i mean we've now we've built the colossus we've cared for the colossus we've worshiped the colossus and now we're destroying the colossus but then in it she destroys herself i mean i guess that what i get from her work at least if i just look at these three poems is that in killing the father figure, she also, in a certain sense, maybe she feels like she has to kill herself too by defining herself in opposition in such a strong way that it's like, you know, she's either in symbiosis or in opposition. And then it's, you'd almost want to see like, well, what would her poetry be if she wasn't defining herself entirely through this struggle with the great men in her life? And yet the conditions that she lived in, in terms of the relationships that she had and the culture that she lived in didn't really allow her to find a place where she was just writing herself and not writing herself in relation to a culture that was observing her or in relation to a patriarchal figure that was commanding her attention and devotion. We never see her just independent. We certainly see Allen Ginsberg defining himself in opposition to a culture. You don't um, say. Well, I think that one thing that makes Ginsberg's opposition interesting and maybe makes him, I, I mean, I almost feel bad to say it, but in some ways more self-aware than Plath. But part of that's because he had the luxury of living longer and sort of getting through some things and as well as the luxury of being a man, right? But part of what makes his opposition to America more self-aware is that he understands that even in his opposition to America, he still is America and he identifies mm -hmm. with the things that he opposes 
in ways that he can get through while Plath never can get through that. And that we see that most obviously in America. What ideas do we have reading America in terms of what this meant and what this did for us and you know the style that, that Ginsburg is writing in, obviously extremely different from anything Plath does? Well, comparing it to Howell, I like this style of organization a lot more. I think it's also really important to listen to him say this because it really makes it easier to understand because it's more conversational. I read it and then somewhere I read that you should listen to it aloud. And I'm just saying that me listening to that put a different. Did you listen to him reading it? Yes. And he was always known for being a great reader. And yet I don't like his voice. I always expect him to read with like a very, very strident, like almost yelling voice, but I always am disappointed and feel like his voice is actually a little too weak for my taste, especially for Howl Mm. or America. But you're right. These are definitely written to be performed. Allen Ginsberg is one of the core members of the group that calls themselves the Beats. And we hear the word beatnik thrown around eventually, though it's probably worth noting that that was a pejorative term. It was sort of a riff off Sputnik or a riff off of, you know, the idea that these guys were communist in some ways, which is, I suppose, more true of Ginsburg than most of them. But (laughs) I imagine we all have an idea of what beat culture is, or maybe we don't. Beats were sort of the original hipsters. They hung out in coffee shops. They read poetry to each other. Hipsters, but not with that like overlay of irony that we think of as so obligatory to hipsterism these days. One thing that's interesting about the beats that we see in their sort of presentation of themselves is that they go back and forth from like a sort of hippie or punk aesthetic to like, here we are being responsible poets and academics. You know, they go both ways. It's something that's to me very indicative of an artistic movement that breaks before, say, like 1967. After 67, 68, you get a pretty hard break between like, well, this is how squares present themselves and this is how the hip present themselves. Whereas earlier than that, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, even if you were really doing something extreme artistically, it was perfectly reasonable and expected that you'd dress in a certain way when you go to teach a class or even to take a class. Where the word comes from is highly disputed, but we get two main claimed origins for it. And one is from Herbert Hunky, who is sort of the disreputable townie friend of Ginsburg and a couple of other of these guys. I guess a poet of sorts. I think that he wrote some stuff, though he was mainly sort of a small-time criminal. At some point, he had you know, been expressing how just weary he was with things. And he said, I'm beat like beat as in beat down, beat as in tired, you know, beat Mm. as in exhausted. Later on, Ginsburg and I think also Bob Kaufman, who was a black poet who is associated with this scene, turned the term around to a sort of more religious meaning as an abbreviation of beatific, like the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. And so... 
in a certain sense, the Beats were intellectuals, artists, and poets, many of whom came from educated backgrounds or middle-class backgrounds, or in, say, Burroughs's case, even upper-class backgrounds. But they identified themselves with not only the working class, but even the criminal class of society who were hanging around with such folks and getting involved in such things. And so a number of them were junkies. A number of them were also sort of spiritualists interested in sort of weird other ways of getting to what they considered to be truth. Ginsburg ends up being interested in Buddhism in certain aspects of Hinduism, as well as in some of the more esoteric Jewish traditions. And sort of the easiest way to understand what they're doing is that they're like hippies before hippies exist, or hipsters before hipsters exist, right? They're into like bebop jazz, because popular jazz is sort of too bland for them, you know? They hang out in coffee houses and read poetry and wear sunglasses inside and wear berets and are bisexual and go on long road trips together and have weird ideas about what makes a good poem or what makes a good novel that don't really square with the ways that people have done those things before. Though in some cases they can find certain precursors. Ginsburg's obviously very influenced by Walt Whitman, but even in his day, Walt Whitman was a uh, sort of freak of sorts. Walt Whitman was sort of the American inventor of free verse. He was a great user of the long line. And what we see Ginsburg doing, certainly in America and in Hal, is using the free verse with the long line to just sort of string these sentences together. People will typically list the major beats as Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and William S. Burroughs. There were a lot of others involved in the scene. As I said, Amiri Baraka was originally involved or at least adjacent to the scene, and he published some of the early beat writing before he decided that he wanted to identify as a Black nationalist and sort of took his career in a different direction. There were a lot of other poets and novelists involved in the beat scene, too. If we want to talk about it as a scene specifically, then we could say that it coalesced in New York City, specifically around Columbia University in the late 40s and early 50s, and then spread out from there. We could say there was a second nexus in San Francisco in the mid to late 50s and early 60s. And we could say that there are hubs any number of other places, not least of which was Tangiers. So politically, we should define the beats as generally anti-authoritarian, generally anti-bureaucratic, vaguely anti-American, often anti-capitalist, but in a number of different ways and sometimes not in any specifically well thought out fashion. I would even say vaguely anti-rationality, 
there's a strong streak within the beat self-presentation as I'm a loose cannon, I'm crazy, you know, and moreover, in a world like this, that's the only sensible thing to be, you know, there's definitely an effort to break out of the strictures of previous Western conceptions of art. So there is an effort to be experimental and to be experimental in a way that will be less linear, less logical. We see this in Hal in America pretty obviously, and Hal deals also explicitly with mental illness. We see it in Burroughs' signature technique of the cut-up, which is a sort of quasi-dada technique of, if you will, scrambling the words together. So like that's the one extreme. And then the other extreme is perhaps someone like Kerouac, who's literally here, I'm going to sit down and just type out what I remember of the past several years of road trips that I've been on. It's like the most boring shit in the world to me, but he was a beat too. And you could see similarly, it's questioning the idea of what a novel is and even the idea of what a sentence is because he's like staying up for days on end and taking Benzedrine, which is more or less uh, dextroamphetamine, which is then again, like more or less Adderall. And just like writing, sometimes you have a sentence that's a whole page long. But to me and to a lot of people who aren't into it, it's just like, I don't know, you're telling me a story about your road trip. So what, you know? In the day, it was a big deal. And it was the kind of thing that some people certainly saw the opportunity for a new culture in. And you can see how these guys then had an influence on what comes about as the sort of hippie movement by the end of the 60s. Ginsburg is a really interesting figure among these three because I think that of the three, he probably does the best job of having a foot on one hand in the tradition of poetry as we understand it. And then also another foot solidly in the tradition of fuck you, I do what I want, that the beats are obviously trying to invent here. America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17th, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when will we end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good. Don't bother me. I won't write my poem until I'm in my right mind. America, when will you be angelic? When will you take off your clothes? What do you think of this? Rachel, why don't you start telling us uh, your reactions to America and your reading of it? I like how his point of view kind of changes, like we were talking about earlier, how he was like calling them out and then he realizes, oh wait, this is me, I am America, and he's calling himself out, and I like the mention of the Wobblies. I say nothing about my prisons nor the millions of underprivileged who live in my flower pots under the light of 500 suns. That was one of the lines that really stuck out to me, and I think this is really important currently especially here in southern Wisconsin by Milwaukee with all the stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. I better consider my national resources. My national resources consist of two joints of marijuana, millions of genitals, and unpublishable private literature that goes 1,400 miles an hour and 25,000 mental institutions. I say nothing about my prisons nor the millions of underprivileged who live in my flower pots under the light of 500 suns. So what he's doing at that point in the poem, he's led from this like place of, I'm just in misery. America, why are you beating me down? Fuck you. Okay, I guess I'll have to write a poem about it. 
and all the way through to I'm talking to America. No, wait a minute. I am America. And then he puts on the mask of America, if you will. Right. So speaking as America, he says, okay, I'd better consider my national resources. And then within those next two lines, those very characteristic Allen Ginsberg reinterpreting Walt Whitman long lines, he switches midline between talking about America and talking about himself. My national resources consist of two joints of marijuana and that millions of genitals is, that's what America has. <laughs> the unpublishable private literature is his. And then the 25,000 mental institutions are what America has, right? So it's like going back and forth in the middle of the sentence. I say nothing about my prisons, the millions of underprivileged who live in my flower pots, right? If you're thinking of like, where would a homeless person live in this small apartment that we're imagining him in, in Berkeley in 1956? Well, okay, I guess they'll have to live in the flower pot. So it's this sort of like comical conflation of the very serious issue with the personal it's to me something that's very characteristic of beat literature, taking on, as you said, like a very serious political problem and then squishing it down to the personal and making it kind of a little bit silly, like something that's playing out in his own head. Yeah. And it's actually not all that different than what Plath is doing in something like Daddy or Lady Lazarus, right? If you think about that, like mythologization of something like the Holocaust. But the difference is that Ginsburg isn't really trying to talk about himself that much, except insofar as that he's a symbol of somebody who is outraged by America. He's much more interested in talking about the problem of America, whereas Sylvia Plath wants... I think we all agree to talk about herself and maybe the problem of the daddy, if you will. I had a weird experience of reading this because I fully appreciate how in 1956 things must have seemed pretty dire, especially given the specter of atomic warfare. And when I read this poem in a more comfortable era, right, it was easy to see it as a sort of record of a more troubled time and for me to understand it as an indication of the trouble that always lurks beneath the surface. I think that there is a nice, comfortable comparison of, at least in my mind, like the 50s and the 90s, whereas like anyone who might perhaps have the wherewithal to, you know, scratch the surface would see like there's a lot of shit wrong here. But at the same time, things were, for those who are at least in the middle class, quite comfortable. And so I feel this sort of affinity with this poem in terms of the way that I grew up with it and read it initially. Though, of course, you know, the sort of Cold War aspect to it, like I said, made it feel like it was out of a time where things were indeed quite a bit more dire, but that it was giving me a lesson about how things are always, in fact, dire in America because of the way that we've structured our system. Reading it now, it feels almost quaint. Things are so truly dire at this point that I'm not sure it quite does what it used to do for me. Like, I feel like it doesn't quite pack the heat, but maybe that's just me. What else do we notice about this that's worth talking about? This is my favorite quote from America. This is the oppression I get from looking at the television set. When I read that, I freaked out because this was written... Oh, gosh. Well, it's not even that long ago, but long ago by our standards. And it still relates so well to 
the news culture of today. I thought that was really on point. Oh, relating to like television and stuff. I wrote a note where it was capital Fox with a couple X's, Fox News on the line. Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Time Magazine? There we go. There's our answer to the question. <laughs> I'm addressing you. Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Time Magazine? I'm obsessed by Time Magazine. I read yeah. it every week. Its cover stares at me every time I slink past the corner candy store. I read it in the basement of the Berkeley Public Library. It's always telling me about responsibility. Businessmen are serious. Movie producers are serious. Everybody's serious but me. It occurs to me that I am America. I'm jogging myself again. That's when I noticed the shift. Yeah, that is the shift. This is like the more innocent form of alarm that I remember from, let's say, the first decade of the war on terror, where this idea that like, yeah, are you going to just replace Time Magazine with Fox News? Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Fox News or by Time Magazine? I'm obsessed. I read it every week. It's cover stares at me as I slink past the corner candy store. There's like this, I know that this is bad and this is gross and this is awful. And a large proportion of people are absorbing this thing as the propaganda that it is and just mainlining it into their fucking diseased skulls but also it's completely weirdly fascinating and i can't help but look and i'm fascinated by it i can quite literally remember a time in college where it would and to be fair, a very dark time as well. Like we were fighting two wars. It was a dark time. And yet imagine me in my room in the ramshackle house that I lived in, you know, reading Adorno and William S. Burroughs and watching Fox News. That would have been a thing that I would have done. Like that would have been like a whole day right there. And that's like I said, the beats were hipsters before there were hipsters. And at first I said kind of without the irony, but then again, also, yeah, I guess with the irony, right? Because you get him like obsessing over Time Magazine, even knowing that it's like stupid propaganda. You get him joking about the fact that we're on the brink of nuclear war, even knowing how horrible that is. Just in the same way that I can remember myself being like, man, we are so fucked. This is the worst it's been. Not realizing how much worse the next 10 years could possibly get. To me, he's a better writer than Plath, hands down. Yeah. If Ginsburg were alive and he edited this, what do you think the new national resources would be here? I would say two price-gouged EpiPens, still millions of genitals, and 25,000 prisons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he wouldn't rewrite it. First off, because as much as he, you know, revises things, you'll notice that he always, well, maybe you don't notice in your version, but you'll notice that when he publishes his stuff, he'll always have the location and the date at the end. So while some of the longer works, like how that'll be like maybe a two year span of time. And certainly America, you can tell, is pretty heavily edited. It's also a record of a time and of a place and of a feeling. So it's a little bit away from that concept of it being for all time. That said, I think that with America, we get the genesis of a whole type of poem 
that we see going on, like a certain type of a protest poem that's all about the relationship of the self to the collective of America that we see lots and lots of writers doing lots and lots of other ways. And sometimes people are tempted to do like an update of America, but it doesn't even necessarily have to literally be that, right? So yeah, I think that you'll see poems. I'm sure people are writing poems today that are talking about the military industrial complex and talking about the cost of prescriptions and talking about all that kinds of stuff in ways that inevitably owe a lot to what Ginsburg is doing right here in this poem and that particularly weird form of dark irony. We see moments of it in some of Baraka's later work too. It becomes a thing. I think that if anything, what I'd say is looking at this, what's really sad is that so much of it hasn't changed. Like the saddest thing about the mental institutions is that they don't exist anymore because they just got shut down and it's now generally just fucking straight up prisons, you know? I mean, there are still some mental institutions, but sad to say it'd be better if there were more. I mean, now in Ginsburg Day, they were not really very well run, but we've gone from a poorly run mental health infrastructure to an almost non-existent mental health infrastructure, at least for the sorts of severe illnesses that he's thinking about, you know. I think it is really radical and it's worth noting for you reading this now, it is worth noting how radical it is for Ginsburg in the mid-50s to write about the stoned, artsy, queer, weirdo as, yes, I too am America. And he's doing something that Walt Whitman was doing a hundred years before him. There's a sort of thread here between the different generations of who counts as America and who is American. And even that is a very political statement in the face of a culture like the 1950s Cold War culture that claimed that there was a certain way of being an American man. Or even like today where we get the explicitly conservative definition of what it means to be an American that cuts out not only more or less any non-white population, but also defines like real American with specific political values. So that last line, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel, is big. I'd better get right down to the job. It's true, I don't want to join the army or turn lathes in precision parts factories. I'm nearsighted and psychopathic anyway. America, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel. I too can do something, even if I'm not useful to capitalism or the <laughs> army. What else do we get out of this poem? It's funny that you end on that note. Now that you read it like that, I see how he would interpret it as a gay man or as a queer man doing his bit. When I was reading this, I wrote down, if you're putting your shoulder to the wheel, is that it? Supposedly you're working hard or doing something about it. But isn't that what we say with all of the issues in our country that keep plaguing us generation after generation? Yeah. Do we fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing anything? Yeah, where he's putting his shoulder to the wheel, Anna, I don't think that that's I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel as in like, look at me changing America for the better. I actually don't think it means that. Even though he was politically involved and certainly he was a part of the peace movement and stuff like that, him writing this in 56, he's not really at that place now. It's again like me in the 90s recognizing the horror of the thing that I was born inside and seeing everybody around me quite comfortable 
at least in the privileged world that I grew up in and saying like, okay, as much as I think that this is bullshit, there's nothing for me to attach to like movement wise right here. And so putting my queer shoulder to the wheel as Ginsburg is putting it here is like, I read it as like, I'm going to do my best poetry. I'm going to spout off. I'm going to go hard in this way that looks to you to be completely crazy and unproductive. I'm nearsighted and psychopathic anyway. So his putting his queer shoulder to the wheel is like literally this. It's like, I'm going to put out this book of poetry that seems like completely meaningless, but actually like this is a great act. This is the thing that I can do. And this, if nothing else, will show people what the world can be and what my world is. Now that doesn't rule out political action in the conventional sense. And obviously, you know, as the beat generation merges into the hippie generation, yeah, then Ginsburg gets involved in the peace movement and Ginsburg gets involved in the gay liberation movement and, and so on and so forth. But I don't think he's seeing it as a purely bounded, like, I'm going to make America better thing. I think it's, to me, literature is more revolutionary than that, but maybe, I don't know. And I guess I didn't phrase it right, because that wasn't my point. I was talking about how he was referencing himself, but then I was thinking of it in more broader terms and connecting it to today, or even the time that he lived in. It would have been interesting to see his reactions to the creation of the new national security state because he died in 97. I do love this line more than anything else. And I've found myself saying it so frequently. When can I go into the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? yeah. (laughs) I I like the sideburns, but no, honey. That's the joke. That's the point of the joke is that like Allen Ginsberg is no Peter Orlovsky. Allen Ginsberg knows that he's the lucky one in that relationship. And Allen Ginsberg knows that when he reads this with his like thick glasses, his sweaty, paunchy ass, like (laughs) standing in front of a group of people, when can I go into the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks is in a weird way, this like radically communist statement that like, we're all beautiful and we all deserve to eat food because don't we deserve to live and when you say it that way it's like oh this makes perfect fucking sense and it's also a a cute little joke about how he doesn't take himself too seriously (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that i'll mention about america before we move on to Hal is that america has this fantastic sort of time warp effect going on in it and i suppose it's probably obvious when you read it but it's again when I first read this poem in the 90s before Wikipedia existed, oh, it wasn't as obvious. It wasn't as obvious that the things that he's referencing are not taking place in the 50s. A lot of the like political things that he's talking about are things that took place in, say, the 20s or the 30s or even the turn of the century, like the mention of the Wobblies that you noted earlier, Rachel, right? So what he's doing is he's reaching back to a whole history of struggle between labor and capital in America that he sees as setting up the background for him then in 1956 writing the poem. It's a kind of clever way of doing the history that isn't quite so ponderous as what you'd get in the classroom. So how for Carl Solomon? So who is Carl? Carl Solomon was a patient at a mental institution where Ginsburg would go visit his mother. 
I guess that I always thought that Ginsburg and Carl Solomon were at some point incarcerated together in an institution, but maybe that's not the case. And also Ginsburg might have shaded that in a way that made it sound like it was different than it was. But obviously he identifies Solomon with his mother. Yeah, so Carl Solomon was a mental patient. He went through, if I'm understanding correctly, numerous shock treatments, insulin shock, electroshock, allegedly had at some point demanded a lobotomy, but I'm, I don't believe they actually gave it to him. He was sort of a legend of sorts. And there's so much in this poem that is legendary and that is in the sort of beat mythology that is legendary, that it's hard to tell sometimes what exactly happened and what is just a story. Certainly Carl Solomon was a deeply troubled person and someone with whom Ginsburg identified in a certain sense as like the ultimate outsider, as in a certain sense a muse, and as in a certain sense a stand-in for his mother with whom he was obviously extremely close. As I said earlier, I usually try and teach Howell as being more or less three sentences, if not literally, then at least conceptually. So part one, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Part two, then asking the question that follows from that, what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? And then part three, Carl Solomon. I'm with you in Rockland where you're madder than I am. And then I'm with you in Rockland. I'm with you in Rockland where over and over. If you get beyond the surface level complexity, it's actually a rather simple structure (laughs) in the big picture in that part one lays out the best minds of the generation being destroyed how they are destroyed, what they look like as they are destroyed, what the situation on the ground is, what Ginsburg has seen and what they have done. These are the exploits of the beats. Section two is, why were we like this? What made us do what we did? What destroyed us and tortured us so? And then attempts to answer that question. And then in part three, calling out to this archetypal extreme of the man suffering the madness of this civilization, Carl Solomon in Rockland, which is to say, I'm with you in Rockland. I too am in the madhouse. I suppose in a certain sense, you could say we're all in the madhouse together. What, What do we want to talk about in here? Oh God, there's so much. I love how he talks about all the weird stuff. I'm like, yeah, okay. I know that's his commentary on the state of society and how it is or how it isn't. But there's an element of humor to that too, at least for me, and that was fun. Oh yeah, there's always humor. There's always humor in these poems, for sure. In Ginsburg's poems, certainly. Just the weirdest things, talking about a Turkish bath and the blonded naked girl with a sword. (laughs) who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof waving genitals and manuscripts right like those two go together genitals and manuscripts yep who hiccuped endlessly trying to giggle but wound up with a sob behind a partition in a turkish bath when the blonde and naked angel came to pierce them with a sword who lost their love boys 
to the three old shrews of fate, the one-eyed shrew of the heterosexual dollar, the one-eyed shrew that winks out of the womb, and the one-eyed shrew that does nothing but sit on her ass and snip the intellectual golden threads of the craftsman's loom. That was pretty good. I find that line hilarious and puzzling. And that's one that I've thought about for years. The three old shrews of fate. I mean, what this is talking about here is, to my mind, a specific experience of being young and being sort of on the fringes of society in the 40s and 50s, in an era of compulsory heterosexuality. And it's a line that I would say a lot of students don't get initially and that I didn't get initially either until I guess I thought a little bit harder about it and lived a little bit longer and thought a little bit more about the history. But who lost their love boys to the three old shrews of fate? Well, the shrews aren't like literal women who drag you down in the sense that that word has traditionally been used in the misogynistic sense. The shrews are the sort of things of the culture and the heterosexual dollar that I could never figure out, well, like, why is a dollar heterosexual? Well, the heterosexual dollar is heterosexual because you get married and you form a nuclear unit. And that's how you sort of operate within capitalism, especially 1950s capitalism. I mean, and you're talking even an era in which it was pretty common, f- not only for gay people to be married, that's obvious enough, right? For gay people to be in heterosexual marriages, but even for gay people who were out to be in heterosexual marriages as well, just because it was like a convenient alliance. So the one-eyed shrew of the heterosexual dollar is this sort of system of work and home life as it exists in that era. The one-eyed shrew that winks out of the womb, well, that's the next thing that comes around, which is having children. The one-eyed shrew that does nothing but sit on her ass and snip the intellectual golden threads of the craftsman's loom. That is, I guess I'm interpreting that now is that like, okay, well, you get your nuclear family, you get your job, you get your family, you get your children, and then it's, you've snipped all the threads of the craftsman's loom because now you have no time left to create. And that's the way, I mean, obviously that's the way that he's seeing this, you know, in this era. You'd have people who would be into free love when they were young, but then they'd sell out. And part of that selling out is the not only the system of capitalism, but the system of breeder heterosexuality. I pick out that line because that's one that I've been fascinated with in the past. Other lines that people are interested in expounding oh, upon? Secret here, all these poems, Coxman and Adonis of Denver. You know who he is? I'll have to say no, so tell me. (laughs) N.C. Neil Cassidy, uh, who is also the main character of Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road. Neil Cassidy is sort of like one of these figures who, he's not really a writer or an artist. I mean, I think he wrote some diaries and stuff like that that probably eventually got published, but he was really important in the 50s and 60s, mainly for exerting this weird influence in all over all these different like artists and writers, just from being around them. And he was mainly famous for, I guess, fucking a lot and traveling a lot. <laughs> But I, he was like a cool dude who everybody really liked, I guess, is sort of the, the short So basically, like, he had the tendencies of, like, a rock star. Basically. Yeah, 
he's a sort of inspirational figure. It's weird when people get famous and strictly speaking, they've done nothing, but that's also maybe right then and there, the critique of capitalism now, isn't it? That in perhaps a society that was organized in a different way, somebody like Neil Cassidy might be viewed as having some value, but strictly speaking, Neil Cassidy by the standards of capitalism is an utter pointless loser. And yet he inspired so many people to write and do all sorts of things. And he was a witness to all sorts of important moments in history, at least in mid 20th century American countercultural history, let's say. He meets Kerouac in Ginsburg. Of course, he wasn't like actually in college, but he becomes their friend. They go on road trips together. He's basically considered sort of like the archetype American man whatever that means. I mean, in a certain sense, this complicates the beat queering of American culture in that part of their queerness is this obsession with this hard masculine identity. And it does seem clear to me and to a lot of people who pay attention to such things that Neil Cassidy was effectively bisexual, but didn't want to talk about it that way. Same goes for Kerouac, you know, who wanted to be such a manly man that he couldn't admit to the fact that, yeah, maybe he had sex with a few of his friends along the way who were dudes, you know, whereas Ginsburg and Burroughs, who were more to the gay end of the Kinsey scale, they were more comfortable with just being like, we're gay. And also sometimes we had sex with women. Right. Everybody in this group, uh, you could effectively say we're bisexual. And that's cool. It's very cool, but it's interesting to like note the way that even people who are basically staking their cultural claim on, look how liberated and free I am, look at how I'm doing things in a new way. Yeah, they have their own hang up still, you know? Mm-hmm. I did find another line if you want to talk about it. I'm going to read it anyway who were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits on Madison Avenue amid blasts of leaden verse and the tanked-up clatter of the iron regiments of fashion and the nitroglycerin shrieks of the fairies of advertising and the mustard gas of sinister intelligent editors or were run down by the drunken taxi cabs of absolute reality. That's a great line. And that's one of the longer lines in that section. You see, as he gets to those long lines, he's trying to get to the point where you run out of breath before the end of the line. So what do you read there? He's obviously critiquing. Is it too broad to say capitalism? Is oh, he? Uh, yeah, for sure, yeah. He's it's... definitely critiquing that. Not only critiquing it, but he's mocking the way that the instruments on Madison Avenue or the editor's and things like that operate within that system. Yeah, it is specifically the culture industry. It is the Madison Avenue advertising industry. It is the city and the white collar businessmen who create the dreams that run our minds. And this is a line that's aged really well insofar as maybe not anymore, but say if I was teaching it five years ago, it'd be very easy to be like, this is Mad Men, you know? Right. This is something that we have a cultural touchstone to point to and say like, well, we know exactly what Madison Avenue means in a way that it might have been forgotten for a little while before that one came on back. 
I would really like to read The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit for this because that's the sort of thing that Ginsburg is critiquing here and that I think that we sometimes forget American culture always had reason to question even as it came about, even though by this point, 10 years later, it seems like a given that like, oh, yes, this is capitalism and fuck those guys, you know, like Mm -hmm. even a lot of those guys didn't really fit into what they were doing. That sort of notion has again sort of come back with that's sort of the whole premise of a show like Mad Men, right? To me, that's where they get the Iron Regiments of Fashion. Yeah. Because Iron Regiments, well, this is so ingrained in what we know. And yet we're still allowing it to dictate what is in and what is out. Mm hmm. He's so seamlessly meshing the imagery of the man in the gray flannel suit with the imagery of warfare, which is, again, something that's actually in that novel, oddly, but it's done really cleverly here. So the innocent flannel suits are then contrasted with the iron regiments of fashion, right? So we get something that's like soft and blameless with something that's hard and stern and controlling. But what brings us to that is the blasts of leaden verse, the tanked up clatter. And that tanked up clatter is so clever because on the one hand, tank suggests drunken. Like I'm thinking of the Madison Avenue stereotype of the guy who, you know, is such hot shit that he can be drunk while he's doing his work or maybe just after his work, right? Then on the other hand, I'm thinking literal tanks, blasts of lead, iron regiments, and then nitroglycerin shrieks. So we have the, like, the war has become an economic thing. The war has become a cultural thing. The war has become advertising. Between the industry and our minds... And arguably, it always was that way, but that's what he's commenting on. Well, but not always. This is the culture industry, right? This is Horkheimer and Adorno saying that, like, no, fascism also has come to America, but it doesn't look like stormtroopers and tanks. It looks like advertising and movies. I have no reason to think that Ginsburg actually read Horkheimer and Adorno. I imagine he would have been quite bored by them. And he was interested in reading literary stuff anyway, not like theory. Literary studies didn't do theory back then the way that we do it now. He would have gotten new critical stuff. He would have gotten like, read this poem and think real hard about it. But that to me proves the point even better that on his own independently, he's seeing the same thing that folks like Horkheimer and Adorno are perceiving in that theoretical Marxist space. I also noticed another line, who journeyed to Denver, who died in Denver, you came back to Denver and waited in vain, who watched over Denver and brooded and loaned in Denver and finally went away to find out the time, and now Denver is lonesome for her heroes. That was just really confusing because she died, but she came back. Because who's she waiting for in vain? Because you would think it would be Denver because she came back for it, but Denver's there. One thing that's important for reading this poem anytime that we want to interpret anything about it is... The who is never necessarily the same who. And that's really obvious between line to line, but it's even true within the line. So 
who journeyed to Denver, who died in Denver, who came back to Denver and waited in vain, who watched over Denver and brooded and loaned in Denver and finally went away to find out the time. And now Denver is lonesome for her heroes. The who never has to be the same person because Ginsburg is kind of dealing with this collective who, like the who of the whole generation, the greatest minds of his generation. So all of these things are not obviously done by the same person, but some person described as the greatest minds of his generation, at least in Ginsburg's conception of that concept, did these things. So it doesn't need to be the same person. We might ask ourselves, why is Denver so important? Or is it important? Could it be anywhere? But we don't have to necessarily figure out what it means in terms of how those things relate to each other. So much as like this leads to that leads to the other, but more like this was an option or that was an option or that was an option or that was an option. So a lot of what we see in this poem is these people who are born into a world with all sorts of restrictions around them. They're in a box, right? But then within the box, they find that the box is actually a maze and they find all the different ways that they can go through the maze. So all the different things that you could do in and around and getting to and getting out of or not coming back to Denver, those are all the different options. And it's not necessarily one thing one person does which doesn't explain the line at all, but it just explains why you don't have to be confused about it. What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men. You know why I wanted to do this right after Metropolis? I can guess. <laughs> I've never seen anybody put these two together, and yet I feel like it's impossible not to. I mean, obviously Moloch exists as like a concept, as a memorable deity, but it's hard for me not to think of Ginsburg having... Like, he must have seen Metropolis and then a couple decades later wrote this, right? It's hard not to make that connection. Ginsburg I mean, is born in 26, but it is worth noting that movies had much, much longer run cycles back then than they do now. Like, a great movie like Metropolis, it's not crazy to think that they would be screening that for like a solid 10 years. Oh, wow. I know that that sounds crazy, but like, especially because you'd have different tiers of movies. If we take it back into, say, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah, they were keen on getting the silent movies out of the theaters quickly, but it's not unlikely that something like Metropolis that was like well-known, special, like clearly a thing, it's not unlikely that they would have kept something like that around and continued to show it at least in the cheap theaters, like maybe it would be the kind of thing that you'd go to if you had like a dime or a penny or something like that. So in my mind, I think that it's likely Ginsburg would have seen Metropolis. Maybe he didn't, but it's possible. Or it's possible that he might have seen it at like a screening when he was in college or something like that. But I'm imagining him taking that scene where the workers are being fed into the maw of Moloch and saying, ah, yes, this is capitalism, of course. There are a couple of visions that went into Hal, and one was that he claimed that 
William Blake was speaking to him. And another was that he said that he saw the vision of Moloch on the side of the Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco, if I'm remembering it correctly. But in my mind, and again, I don't know of anybody who's written about it this way, so what the fuck do I know? But this is just in my mind an idea that I have. It's hard for me not to see him superimposing that scene from Metropolis on there. Even the same way that Fritz Lang literally superimposes it, right? There we have the scene of the machinery, and then we get that overlay of here's the maw of the god, and then here are the workers being shoved into that chewing, burning maw. Moloch, whose breast is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch, whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's. Moloch, whose factories dream and croak in the fog. Moloch, whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities. It is a kind of science fiction vision. Robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invisible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere around us. That lifting Moloch to heaven also reminds me of that Tower of Babel scene, especially with those hands reaching up. Oh, yeah. Any thoughts about the vision of Moloch? I wrote that the bending of the mind by rules, taboos, and mores is inescapable. But what of you, Carl? Are you another victim or one worth celebrating? And then I took note also of his exclamation points with anger and enthusiasm. I also thought about, well, is everything or everyone tainted? And is everything or everyone opposite? It sounds like you're trying to figure out whether Carl Solomon is actually effectively resisting this Moloch or if he's just subordinate to it. Right. Is he resisting or is he operating under it? I'm not honestly sure that there's a difference. And I think that that's one way that Ginsburg's notion of politics and of political action and of repression and rebellion is quite a bit different than the way that we normally think of such things. I do think it's fair to say, perhaps from your perspective or perhaps from my perspective, that someone like Carl Solomon isn't actually in any sense a resistance figure to this Moloch. He's just been beaten down and crushed by it, and that's that, and he is what he is, and he's in his asylum, right? But I think that to Ginsburg, and perhaps this has something to do with his spirituality— To Ginsburg, just the persistence of the human soul itself is enough or is adequate or is at least something that in surviving the thing, you are proving that the thing cannot beat you, which might not seem like enough to us these days. definitely not to us, but... Yeah. Breakthroughs over the rivers, flips and crucifixions, Gone down the flood, highs, epiphanies, despairs. Ten years, animal screams and suicides. Minds, new loves, mad generation, down on the rocks of time. 
Real holy laughter in the river. They saw it all, the wild eyes, the holy yells. They bade farewell. They jumped off the roof to solitude, waving, carrying flowers down to the river, into the street. It's so bizarrely optimistic. Everything with the breakthroughs stanza, it's all so optimistic except for despairs and 10 years' animal screams and suicides. Mm-hmm. It's like roping them into the same thing, but it's like the opposite. I think that after looking at America, remember how he would switch off between the, this is America, this is me, this is America, this is me. And he would like alternate in the same line. True. Again, we're seeing all different sorts of reactions to Moloch, just like in the same line earlier in part one, I said it doesn't have to necessarily be the same person. It also doesn't necessarily have to be the same sentiment. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same conclusion that comes out of it, but that it's all coming together. It's all the possibilities for the ways of being in this thing. They saw it all. We might say that maybe it's not a responsible treatment of something like the 10 years animal screams and suicides. We might say any number of things about the moments in here where we see something horrible show up for a second and then it's overwhelmed by something else that's just crazy or wonderful. We might say, oh, it didn't deal with that moment really very well, but it's also trying to give this massive panorama of all the things. I'm more curious about the 10 years. Yeah. And I see 1956 and I think, well, he's talking about the whole 55, 56. He starts writing it supposedly in 55. He's thinking of the whole post-war era. Like, what does it mean to be in a victorious America after 1945, right? So that to me is the 10 years. I don't know how long Carl Solomon was in the mental hospital for if he was in there for 10 years or if he had been in there for 10 years when Ginsburg met him, then that could be a meaning. But I see a meaning of the post-war era. I think that that's pretty relevant to that poem. Again, if you're writing a poem about a whole generation and if you're going for the big picture, then you have to say something like, well, how many people killed themselves in 10 years? 10 years, animal screams and suicides, especially if you're trying to engage at least in some way with mental illness, which obviously he is, right? So the suffering, but also those who didn't survive. And I think maybe this gets a little bit to the footnote too. The footnote to how holy, 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 holy. The world is holy. The soul is holy. The skin is holy. The nose is holy. Everything is holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. So in a certain way, his perspective is that we can only accept the world, especially a world this crazy, but we can only accept the world. We can only accept any world by saying that this is all part of some grand sacred scheme and that therefore he's going to tell the story of everything and lay everything on an equal plane. And yeah, that means maybe that he sounds happy and excited, even if he's talking about people suffering. But that's the whole picture of it, that we are still human in the midst of suffering. That's not necessarily a comfortable thing for all of us, but he is trying to figure out metaphysical response to all of what he's seeing. Did you have any thoughts on the footnote, Anna? I said that these run-ons are all extensions of, well, this won't be the right word, but of the vanilla. (laughs) 
In what way? Well, all these things you can readily find in our world, and none of them are really that special or even that interesting when you really sit down to examine them. But in our culture, therefore, they are untouchable. And then I started thinking about, well, should these be appreciated or questioned? Is it what it is? Or, I mean, to me, it's always a no, but... Holy the crazy shepherds of rebellion. Who digs Los Angeles is Los Angeles. Boom. Right. I mean, I was going there for a line that we might say is pretty lame and vanilla by contemporary (laughs) standards. I think there was a time when the footnote would have seemed really radical in like a sort of roots Christian way in a sort of radical acceptance of the world and of the many ways of being in the world. I would say it hasn't aged well in that way. I would say now, to me, it was almost jokey as I was reading it. Yeah, for sure. As I said, there was a time. You know, I think that as Ginsburg is presenting this, this is a really radical statement. But as, if you will, capitalism and the culture have grown into complacency it's become the kind of thing that's very easy to read as if you will a very vanilla liberal i'm okay you're okay it's all cool type thing i wouldn't automatically put it in the terms of vanilla liberal i would just say in terms of culture which i guess translates to the vanilla libs at some point (laughs) but not outright Put another way, we might ask ourselves the question, when does radical acceptance become mere squishy relativism? Sure. Yeah, that's better. I think that there was a time when I thought that the footnote was really a wonderful and helpful explanation. And now that I look back on it, I think that actually the footnote is a problem and that it undercuts the message the kind of message that we get with something like I'm with you in Rockland. What we get with the statement of the third section, I'm with you in Rockland, is in a civilization this crazy, I side with those who are considered the outcast. In a civilization this crazy, I side with those who are defined as insane. Potentially, that third section is a taking of sides. I'm with you in Rockland. We might be in a moment of great despair, but I will be with you in that despair and we will be together. But then the footnote, I think, risks completely erasing that by erasing any difference between Moloch and those who are under the weight of it. I mean, it's not like he ever says, holy Moloch. No, of course, he'd never say that. But that whole worldview then risks that. You only go up to the stormtroopers with flowers so many times before you realize that's a bad idea. Yeah, probably shouldn't do that. I mean, I suppose it's worth a shot once, but maybe but not doing even the same, doing the same thing over and over again is insanity. <clears throat> and not the good kind. No. You have been listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. I'm sound editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, 
funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The music in today's episode is Call the Doctor by Sleater Kinney on their album Call the Doctor, as well as Worms of the Senses, Faculties of the Skull by Refused on their album The Shape of Punk to Come. Remember to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. We're also selling the Pointless Century t-shirts now, so if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the link in the description below for our new merch. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode of The Pointless Century.